end of year uh, personal things, uh, I begin to think about prayers uh, for the coming new year. Uh, I'll share more probably from Philippians 3 on Sunday morning is where my heart's leaning at this point. But I was looking at Philippians 4 tonight, and one of the things I do a lot of times is I'll find uh, passages where there are imperatives, uh, like such as Paul gives, or it might be Christ in the Gospels, or, or in maybe Peter. Uh, but I find passages where there are imperatives, and then I try to convert those and make those into prayer requests. And I, I was kind of experimenting with that in Philippians 4 tonight and I just wanted to share a few of those thoughts with you this is not obviously an exhaustive prayer uh, for myself or for you uh, and need, nor should it be an exhaustive prayer there's many things we could pray for in the coming new year uh, we might even take all of those and condense them down to one one main theme for the uh, 2024 but this is certainly uh, I think encouraging to me and certainly if you need something to pray for me, you're welcome to pray this. Uh, and I'll be praying that for you as well. But let's read chapter 4. Uh, I think I'll read through uh, verse 14, but we'll only be looking at verse 1 through 9. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So much to say even in those last few passages, but uh, as converting this into a prayer, I just thought uh, about phrasing it this, this way. Uh, pray for me and uh, pray for us that we might stand firm. You see that in verse, the very first verse there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm. If you'll turn back in your Bibles to chapter 3, uh, he really uh, is setting up. This is his description of how you stand firm. He begins uh, that chapter as well with rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. He gives them their warnings uh, 
Uh, he shares of his own uh, past, uh, his own past propensity to trust in his own righteousness, and he kind of rebukes that in himself. And then he talks about his new life. It's interesting, uh, verse 8, the first couple of verse, uh, uh, sentences there. More than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Uh, I was reading it, it's been years ago, but it was, a, it was a Greek commentary on this passage. And the language here in that first phrase is extraordinary. And it really literally translates out this way. He would be saying this, but more, but, but indeed even also do I. <laughs> That's, he's stacking up these, these terms as he's getting to the things, count all things in loss. In other words, but indeed, even also do I count all things but loss. So he's emphasizing his complete rejection of all that he once held as his, his righteousness. And that, that's part of how he's saying these are things you need to learn to stand firm. So he goes through that section. Uh, verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained it, speaking of the resurrection and the power of Christ, but not that I have already obtained it or become perfect, but I press on so that I might know that, lay hope that I might lay hold of that for which also I am laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he, in verse 17, he picks up there, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. If you jump down verse 20 and 21, I think is where he's springboarding in chapter four, where he says of them, of himself, for our citizenship <clears throat> is in heaven from which also we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, uh, I read all that uh, to introduce the therefore. That's why he's saying this. Uh, this understanding these things is how you will be able to stand firm. But that's his prayer. Uh, that's what I'm converting to his prayer. His exhortation is stand firm, brethren. And that's my prayer for you in the coming 2024. And I pray that it's your prayer for me. I want to stand firm. Uh, let me say what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean self-righteousness. It doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't mean mean-spirited. It doesn't mean militant. It, it doesn't mean angry. It means standing firm in who we are. My citizenship is in heaven. And so I'm not striving to be a citizen of this world. I'm not looking for acceptance in this world because my citizenship is not here. I am a pilgrim here. Uh, I am a sojourner here in this world. My, I am created. I am born again for a new citizenship, and that is in the kingdom of heaven. So when we pray that we might stand firm, that's what we need to be thinking about, that we might stand firm as citizens of the kingdom of God. In verse 2, another prayer that I'm drawing from this text is that we might live in harmony. He speaks of two people individually here, but I think it could span out to all those in the church, Judea and Syntyche, 
to live in harmony in the Lord. We know later on that these were both godly women. And so there was some sort of disagreement that had disrupted their fellowship or their harmony there. The word translated harmony in the New American there is literally in the same mind as. And that was interesting to me. So it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we may not have different approaches or different ways of looking at something, but we're of the same mind. Uh, you, I always think of Paul, you remember, and Barnabas and Mark, and, and there was a division there, and, and Paul wasn't going to take Mark along with him because they were somewhere or another, and Mark uh, kind of walked away from the ministry, and, and Paul didn't trust him, and he said, I'm not taking Mark with me, and Barnabas had a lot of confidence in Mark, and he wanted to take him, and so sharp was the division there that they ended up splitting, and you remember that Paul took Silas, and Barnabas took Mark, and they parted ways. So there was a, they were of the same mind, although they had very different perspectives on whether or not Mark was fit for the ministry. We do know that later on, at the end of Paul's ministry, he asked specifically to bring Mark with you. He wants to reestablish, and he probably, uh, Mark had proven himself as a faithful uh, disciple of Christ, so, so he wanted to embrace Mark once again. So I think that's what he's saying here, these two women, and also translating that as a prayer for us that we would live in harmony, in the same mind. It's interesting, in Ephesians 4, 3, uh, it says there that there is a unity of the Spirit. In fact, he says, you've heard me say this many times, we're not to manufacture that. As a Christian, there is an inherent unity of the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit. He doesn't say manufacture that. He says preserve it. Well, if I'm preserving something that already exists, you don't preserve what doesn't exist or what's dead or decayed. You throw it out. So as Christians, as the body of Christ, we have been given by the Spirit an inherent uh, harmony or an inherent unity that is rooted in the common spirit that dwells in each of us. And I think that's what Paul means here when he says of the same mind. He don't mean I want y'all to think exactly alike. I want you to understand what you're about, who you are in Christ, what you have in common in, your, in the spirits dwelling in you. And that's the key to harmony. So we're praying for that harmony with that ideal in mind, that they have that unity of the spirit. Additionally, in Philippians, this same book in chapter 2, verse 5, he says something Paul does that, that I, uh, I remember we had a study years ago, the mind of Christ. And he says there, have this attitude in, your, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe that attitude. So when I think when Paul's saying that he wants Eutychus and Syntyche to have the same mind or to be in harmony, it's with that in mind. He wants them to remember their common, uh, their common relationship as Christians in whom the Spirit dwells. But he also wants them to remember that they are to be striving for the mind of Christ, which is sacrificial which is preferring others above themselves. Usually when there's a, a division, we're not doing that and we lose track of that. So that's a prayer for the new year. Not only that we might stand firm throughout the new year, but that we might, that we might live our lives in harmony of the same mind and not, not, not unanimous in the, everything that we think, but not really a unanimity there, but a unity of the spirit. That's what ties us together. You understand that, right? I mean, as Christian, that's, that's what ties us together. 
We all have different interests. We all, we all sometimes come at things from a different point of view. And every, every point of view in that sense is complementary and sometimes helpful because it gives us another facet and gives us a fuller view. But, those, but the way we look at things is not what unites us necessarily. It's that spiritual unity. Every believer in this room has the Holy Spirit dwelling within, as do I. And so we're united forever by that union with the Lord. Uh, you can't take me out of Christ and I can't take you out of Christ. So I best learn to get along with you, right? I mean, we best find some way of fellowshipping and experiencing that harmony because I'm not going to take you out of Christ. Paul says clearly in Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Surely not me and surely not you. You can't separate me and I can't separate you. So a prayer for 2024 and even the remainder of 2023 is that we might live in harmony. In verse 3 as well, I think you could expand this, but he includes here the aid of others to help these ladies uh, live that way. And so I translated that into this prayer that we are to aid or that we would be mindful of aiding others to live in that same harmony. And that involves teaching, that involves coming alongside, that involves sometimes listening, that involves uh, sometimes weeping, and that involves all that's necessary in transitioning from being self-willed to being guided by the Spirit, guided by the truth of God's Word. That's what, uh, this is one of the beauties of the fellowship of the body of Christ, is because that's the dynamic that is working out all the time. I've always said this is like a, uh, the church is kind of like a, 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 a nursery. <laughs> you know, Christians come in here and we, and we work on putting these principles of faith to work. And we, and we start with little stutters and we stumble around as we're young in the faith. And we're in this safe environment where there are mature Christians who are aiding us and, and helping us to come along in some ways. And they're long-suffering and they're patient and they're instruction and they're compassionate and they're gentle and they're gracious. And sometimes they have to even be firm, but it's an environment in which we're learning to put to practice the truths that we learn in God's word, where we're, we're in an environment where we are loved and we are encouraged to do so. Go out into the world and try to put that into practice and see how much compassion you get there. You stumble out there, what do they do? They jump on you in a heartbeat. They'll point out your sin quicker than anybody. And if you point theirs out, they'll even quote the Bible. Who are you to be judging? I mean, they, they, they are quick to judge you. There's no mercy in the world for the Christian who stumbles. But the church is an environment where, where there's, there's truth and there's firmness and there's love, but there's also mercy to where you look at a believer and you say, look, he's on the right trajectory. I'm not going to hammer at him on this small point, but he's, he's in the right direction. I'm going to come alongside and live my life with him. So pray, pray for us, pray for me that we would... Be quick to aid others to live in this harmony. It never fails it. You've seen it before through the years and conflicts in the church. And it always seems to divide up along lines of loyalty and friendship. I've known them all these years and, and they just line up immediately behind someone they've known all those years. And loyalty is a good thing, but blind loyalty is not helpful to any Christian. I don't, uh, I've shared with our elders before, I, I appreciate their, their love and their friendship and even their loyalty, but not blind loyalty, not a loyalty that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to side with you even if I think you're wrong. If I think I'm wrong, I want them to say that I'm wrong. And that's the kind of loyalty 
we need in the body of Christ. So we come alongside one another and to help each other to live in harmony. I would just add there, I might help you today, but I might need your help tomorrow because that's just the way life unfolds. Some days I may see very clearly in a situation and I'm discerning and I understand how, what adjustments you might need to make. But in other times I might be more emotionally involved. I might be more engaged and be blind to what's needed in my own life. So I'm going to need you to do that as well. That's what the body of Christ does. And so we're praying for that as well. In verse 4. Pray that we might rejoice always in the Lord. This one was a big one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, I touched on this in the sermon on joy during Advent. But I love that Paul reiterates that. Again, I will say rejoice. And that word, uh, the rejoicing word is not so difficult for me as the word always. That's the challenging word of that passage. Because we're all sitting in this room tonight and you can think of circumstances, whether even present or in your life, where that always thing was really challenged. You know what rejoicing is, but rejoicing always. That's what, that's what I need prayer for. I mean, you see me sometimes rejoicing. You may say, amen, I'm glad Larry's rejoicing, but I want to do it always. And I need prayer for that. I need the saints of God interceding on my behalf that the Lord might open my eyes and my understanding to realize what is the ground of always rejoicing. Because until I figure that out, my rejoicing is always going to be temporary or circumstantial. And it's going to be taken away from me, as I shared on that Sunday morning, uh, every day of the week. It's going to be taken away from me. So we pray for one another that we would rejoice, yes, but that we would rejoice always, always. That's a, that's a high calling. I Believe me, through the years... Uh, and I've seen, uh, I've been by those deathbeds and I've watched health deteriorate and decline. And it never, I've never once <clears throat> been in that situation that I didn't ask myself at some point, how will you fare when that day comes, Larry? Will you be rejoicing then? Will you be faithful then? Will you be patient with the providential hand of God then? Will you be content for his will to be unfolded in your life then? Will you rejoice in it? Will you embrace it at that moment? I don't know. I'm praying for God's grace to be there in that moment, that he would give me dying grace if need be. But I, we need to be thinking in regards to what it is we're rejoicing over and praying for one another that we might learn. That we might learn to rejoice and to rejoice always. Very, very important. In fact, uh, my mom will share with you, but she went to a church years ago and they were having a lot of conflict and I was not even in church then. Uh, I wouldn't even say I was a believer, but I knew something in my mom had changed and I was just bold enough and cocky enough uh, when she was around one time and I actually meant it as an attack against her faith, but she, she didn't hear it that way. But I said, what's the matter, mom? You don't seem as happy as you used to. And I said that in my smug little attitude because she had always rejoiced in her faith and was always testifying of the joy of the Lord. And then her church began to have great conflict and I, I literally watched the joy evaporate out of her life. And I, even as an unbeliever, I said, what's the matter, mom? That, that my point was your faith's not working, is it? 
Joy is subjective to hard times in life, Mom. Face the music. But the Spirit spoke to her heart in that, and she'll share with you today the testimony that the Spirit gave her then. She moved closer to finding out the root of her joy. And she's, she's a very different woman because of that, that experience in God's providence and even through the mouth and the smart mouth of an unbelieving, rebellious son. So don't think God might not use instruments that you wouldn't prefer. Rejoice always in the Lord. Number five here, pray that we might be known for our gentleness. I'm drawing that from verse five. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That was interesting, to all men. He says the Lord is near, but I'm emphasizing there the gentle, let your gentle, of all the things Paul could have said to this Philippian church as he's closing out his letter here, he could have said, let your faith be known to all men. Let your zeal be known to all men. Let your love be known to all men. He could have said any of those things, but he says, let your gentleness be the mark of your identity to all men. Let them look at the Philippian church and say they are a gentle people. They are, they, are not, they are not militant. They are not aggressive. They are a gentle people. But here's, here's my words, but powerful. In fact, I think I read one time that the definition of meekness was, was used often in regards to, to a, a horse that was under the control of its rider. A horse is in no way weak, right? They are, they are incredibly strong. But when they are subject to their master, they demonstrate a meekness and this power, as it were, under control. So I don't think gentleness here should communicate something of weakness of the church in Philippi. And Paul understood that. In fact, I think his statement, his next statement, gives the context of that. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be known to all people. I don't think any church would want to be known as an aggressive, belligerent loud, boisterous, uh, judgmental, self-righteous church, would they? I don't want to be a part of a church like that. If it's like that, I want to be, I want to get out of there. I think I would be content if the reputation for Diamond Hill in Iredell County and our surrounding city was they are a gentle people. Pray that we can be gentle people, that we'd be known for our gentleness. And you say, when is that? Why is that? When he says the Lord is near, I think he could mean two things here. In other words, this gentleness may be a result of our faith and our realization in times of distress that he is with us. In fact, that's the great commission. Go into all the, all the nations. And he says at the end, lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the age. Be gentle in times of distress. You can be gentle. In times when you're persecuted, you can be gentle. Why? The Lord's near. There's nothing going to happen to you that his providential hand won't allow. And if he allows something horrible to happen, it is ultimately for your good. So be, be gentle because the Lord is near. In fact, to be honest with you, that's the only way I can be gentle. Because if he's not near and I can't trust him, if you try to, if you try to take something from me, I can't be gentle. I can't give you my cloak whenever I, you ask for my shirt. I can't let you slap this side whenever you've just slapped that side unless the Lord's near. 
And then I know you can't slap a second time or a third time or ever again if the Lord wills that you do not strike me again. Be gentle. He's near. That's the root of gentleness is the nearness of the Lord. You know, by the way, that gentleness is one of the fruits listed of the Spirit in, in Galatians 5. It is a, that is a spiritual gentleness or a spiritually derived gentleness that comes, I think, from the conviction that the, we are in the Lord's care and He is a good shepherd. If you keep that in your mind and you sow that deep into your heart, I think you and I will find that gentleness will come a lot easier to us because we don't feel threatened all the time. We don't feel the victim all the time. We're not, we're not prone to, to jump to conclusions in regards to our own victimhood. So he could mean that. He could also mean the Lord is near in terms of his second coming. He's returning. Be gentle. When he comes back, there'll be a, a mighty victor uh, coming upon the scenes, and that is Christ. He is that mighty warrior that shall put down all unrighteousness and exalt his name and exalt the name of God. And so be gentle. You don't need to, you don't need to be Jesus. He is, he's himself. And so be gentle in times of distress, in times of trial. Why? Because his coming is soon. And I do think it's soon. It's easy to say it's sooner than it was yesterday and it's sooner than it was 20 years ago. But it seems to me, and I've heard many men who I respect who believe that God has already subjected America to judgment. And that we are now under judgment. And it's coming in increments. And, and perhaps the Lord is giving us a window of grace and of mercy to turn and to repent, beginning with his people and then outward into this nation. But I believe we are already under judgment. We are literally reaping what we have sown in this nation. I told Hope last night, we've been a nation who have exterminated babies in the womb for since 1973, I think, 73 and how many millions of children have been lost in the womb and, and, and how many mothers and fathers have been wounded in their spirit uh, having feeling compelled to make such a decision. <clears throat> and now we stand back in awe when young people are in the street taking life willy-nilly as though it has no value whatsoever. And I told her, we taught them well. We taught them that life has no value, so why would we be surprised now when they take life at, at any moment? We've taught them well. We've taught them well. So he could simply mean, let, let us be known for our gentleness because the Lord is about to return. His second coming is near, certainly nearer than we would believe, I think. In verse 6, you see another one converted here to a prayer request that we would not be anxious. Uh, if you look in verses 11 uh, and 13 there, 11 through 13, I think Paul gives a little window into, why, into how he was able to deal with anxieties. And, and I think that's rooted in, in Christ. I can do all things who, through Christ who strengthens me. But here's a, here's a wonderful prayer for, for you to pray for me and for us to pray for one another is that in the coming year, we would not be anxious. Anxious. I thought about that a lot through the years, but anxiety in some ways betrays a lack of trust in the providential hand of our Savior, of our God. It says that this thing coming into my life 
is somehow beyond his hand, beyond his ability to control and to use it for my good. I'm anxious because because I'm I'm not trusting here. And and I'm speaking from experience. (laughs) I feel anxiety sometimes. And every time I feel that anxiety, I track that back to to the root, which is my lack of confidence and faith in God. And sometimes, even so far as my fear of dying uh, and, and going through the death shadow to get to heaven. And it's, it's, this anxiety starts rising up in me and I always try to call myself out in those moments. Larry, do you think that the God who came to earth in the person of Christ and the incarnation and went to the cross and purchased you and, and, and drew you to himself and united himself with you and, and has you in his care, do you think in one way he's going to allow something that is going to harm or to disturb or become an obstacle to what he's doing in your life to your joy? Do you, do you not believe that, Larry? And I would say to Christians and those whom we pray that they, might, that they might not be anxious, I would say the same thing. Do you not believe that? Is he not capable of caring for you? Trust me, I'm not saying caring for you according to what I want to unfold in my life. I'm saying caring for you according to his perfect will for you, which is your joy. To that end, he is perfectly capable of taking care of you. So there need not be anxiety. There need not be that. In fact, it betrays a little little, uh, caveat. I know that it is an impulse of the flesh. And I know we may not get all the way through this life and completely eradicate ourselves from anxiety because it is just part of the fallen human nature that we are putting off systematically as we are being sanctified. But do you think there'll be any anxiety in heaven? Is he any less capable of ruling here on earth as he will be from heaven? No. He's exactly, he's as much capable of ruling in our lives now as he will be at the consummation of the age when we're all in glory. He will be just as capable of the Lord then and just as caring and just as loving. So brothers and sisters, be not anxious, Paul writes to us. So that's a prayer for us. We could just spend whole 2024 working on that one. Number seven in verse six, you see this and converted to a prayer that we would be prayerful in everything. Uh, I definitely think I, and I believe you probably would think that you could be more prayerful. You could be more prayerful. I'm not saying you're not prayerful. I'm not without prayer, but I could be more prayerful. In fact, uh, I remember reading a book years ago. I've quoted it a number of times, but it was, all I remember was Brother Lawrence. That may be the way the book was titled by the author, Brother Lawrence. And he was a monk, and he was assigned kitchen duty. And, and he was outraged at his kitchen duty because it interfered with his prayer life. And he was distressed. This kitchen work is cutting me off from prayer time. But he couldn't get out of the kitchen work. And so the Lord took him through this whole process in which he began to realize, I can work prayerfully. 
My, my labor can be done in the context of prayer. I can wash this dish to the glory of God and be mindful of all that's involved in making this dish and bringing water into the basin and to adding soap and making soap to clean the dish. I can be mindful of all that was involved in weaving the rag in which I'm wiping this dish. And all the while I can be moving those dishes along. And from the outside, he's a very efficient monk. But on the inside, I'm a worshipful monk and I am a prayerful monk doing his duty. Pray for us that we can be more prayerful, more prayerful. And that that might begin with just praying before we embark upon some task and maybe schedule it in our minds somewhere in the middle of that task. Pause and pray again. Lord, thank you for the strength it takes to do this. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that is to do this. Lord, as difficult as this is, thank you for the physical strength and whatever's necessary to carry me through this task. Remind ourselves that we are doing it as unto the Lord, as the scriptures would say. So pray. Pray that we would be prayerful, more prayerful, but prayerful in everything. I, I never uh, always think it's special when I read the text where the disciples, the children are trying to get to Jesus, you know, and I I always imagine in my mind what they were doing. Was it just what they had heard about him? There was an excitement. Did they, did they sense that he was a kind and gentle man and they were, were they just naturally drawn to it? I don't know what motivated them, but the kids wanted to get to Jesus and the disciples like us, uh, like we would probably be pushed them back. No, 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 no. He's way too important for for childish things. You stay back. And I love that Jesus stingingly rebukes them. Forbid them not. Can you imagine Christ saying that? Forbid them not. Let those children come. And he takes them up into his lap. And then he turns it around and says, I'm telling you, unless you become like one of these, you're not entering into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I'm surprised Peter didn't drop down on his knees and say, goo goo gaga. I mean, I got, to get, I got to become like a child. I think Jesus meant more than that. But Jesus, these kids, I love them because they pray about everything. Don't discourage your children from praying for their cat. Don't, don't discourage them for praying for things. If they're fleshly things, you might give them some instruction there. But don't discourage them from getting the mindset that everything is prayer worthy. We ought to be praying about everything, always. That's a prayer for 2023. And would be that God would grant grace for that to be true of our nation. It would become again a prayer, a nation of prayer. Verse 6, another prayer here is that, and I added this to that, distinguished it apart, but that we would be thankful um, I spoke with this on Thanksgiving, but, but it's always something on my heart. I, I think I ought to be always and ever thankful. Always. What, what do I not, what do I have to not be thankful about? If it's a difficulty in my life, then it's an instrument in the hands of the Lord to, to sanctify me and to make me more Christ-like. So I have to even be thankful for the difficult instruments that he may use in my life. And perhaps I might even learn that if I wasn't so stubborn, he might not use such harsh instruments. 
But what do you have tonight that you ought not to be thankful for as a believer? I mean, if our life ends at this moment, if we all suddenly had one massive coinciding heart attack, we have eternity to be thankful for as Christians. Be thankful. Prayer in 2024 that we would be a grateful people. I mean an instinctively grateful people. Not this we have prayers of thanksgiving, but that we would feel gratitude in our lives. Even when difficult times come, and they will come. In verse 8, pray that we might dwell upon the excellent and the things worthy of praise. I think that would tend to really be helpful towards our anxiety. Because anxiety is usually about dwelling on things that aren't excellent and things that are not worthy of praise and everything that's wrong. And so Paul starts concluding this with dwell on these things. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, good reputation, whatever any excellence and anything worthy of praise, he says, dwell on these things. That, that has to do with the mind and the thinking. Uh, part of disciplining our minds. Uh, I'm amazed how, how inconsistent I can be at times because I am generally a one-track-minded person. Whatever I'm doing, I'm all in. Uh, and I'm amazed at myself how, how, how quickly, even though I'm all in, some, something outside that realm comes into my mind and how quickly I lean towards and start worrying about that and start dealing with that. And, and he seems to be saying here, Learn, learn to track what you're thinking about. If, if you're identifying these things and those things, dwell on those things. Um, this is not some guru positive thinking message here. He's saying there is good and there is truth in this world and it originates with the very person of God. So to dwell on these things is to, is to reflect upon the nature of a holy God. Dwell, set your mind, discipline your mind to think godly thoughts. I've heard someone say, you've heard the saying before, they're so heavenly minded that there are no, no earthly good. And that's, that's absolutely wrong. To be the most earthly good is to be the most heavenly minded. You can do more for this earth the more you set your mind on things above. That'll make you far more effective in this earth. But if you're not heavenly minded, you're not going to be of any earthly good at all. You're just going to be contributing to the corruption. So pray for us that we might train ourselves to dwell on those things that are excellent and those things that are worthy of praise. You could do an exposition of each one of these true, honorable, worthy of honor, right. Gosh, there's a word. There's one we've lost the track of in this generation, right. How dare you say that's right or that's wrong. Dwell on what is right. Where do you learn that from? Not from Harvard, not from Yale. You learn it from the word of God. That's right. Think on what is right. Just that word alone. Pure, holy. Think about that. What is, what is pure? What are, are you thinking on things that are pure and holy? 
Are you thinking on things that are lovely? And I think he means here the manifestation of love in the, in the agape sense. Lovely things. It could, it could even be expanding to the beauty of God's creation and God's creative hand in those things. Lovely things. Things reflecting the very nature of God himself as I shared this past Sunday morning. God is love. And the final one here is in verse 9. Pray for me and pray for one another that we might put into practice what we've learned. Now, I added this one at the last minute because <laughs> I was working through this prayer and I, I've kind of said, well, Paul's kind of transitioning there to another closing. So then I went, wait a minute. I, I need this prayer too. He says there, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, basically say the things you have seen me teaching and practicing and employing and embracing in my life, which is essentially the teachings of the gospel. He says to them, practice these things. You do them, do them, do those things. So we can pray for one another that, and you can evaluate in your own mind, you don't have to do a show of hands, but of what percentage of what you know are you actually practicing? Are you 50%, 100%? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that everything I know to be right, I am doing? Wouldn't it be wonderful to say that? I don't think anybody here would be so prideful as to say that. We know far more than we practice, right? In the new year, the prayer Converting Paul's exhortation here into a prayer is, Lord, help us to put into practice the things we know to be right. And if you need any help, the book of James will give you a lot of help in that. <laughs> faith without works, he says, is dead. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you mine with my works. He knows it's impossible to do that. And you could translate that into, Lord, help us to be an obedient people. I, I love this because... Paul concludes this. In fact, I was going to do a whole section on this but because he says it also in verse 7. But he says at the end of that, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will do what? Will guard your hearts and your minds. I love that. When you see hearts and minds set side by side, he's talking about... He's talking about the whole of man, his understanding and his emotion. Practice these things. Set these things in order. Trust in the grace of God to bring them in our lives. And if you do that, there will be a peace that surpasses understanding. I, it's indefinable to me. I just know it's there. I am calm and I am at peace in my relationship with God. And that's what he's saying here. That, that peace will become a guard for the emotions and for the understanding. We won't, be tend to, we won't tend towards anxiety and our minds running away with us. And we won't be tend to ex emotional explosions or depressions or any of those other things. We'll be guarded in our emotions and in our thinking and in our understanding by something that's incomprehensible. And that is, he says, the peace of God. It is incomprehensible. Inexhaustible. Uh, was the way I would think of it. What, what sort of peace do I know of God? What little I know, 
uh, is nowhere near the fullness of the peace that God can provide. And Paul leaves them with that blessing, or that promise of blessing as well. So I hope that's encouragement to you. Uh, if you want some notes to pray for me specifically for these, I'll give them to you. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll send you an email. Well, I can't when my phone's broke somehow or another, but I'll get, I'll get word to you. Uh, and pray for one another. Just running through there, pray, pray for us that we might stand firm, that we might live in harmony, that we might aid others to live in harmony, that we might rejoice always in the Lord, that we might be known as a gentle people, that we would not be anxious, that we would be prayerful in everything and thankful, that we might dwell upon those things that are excellent and worthy of praise, and that we might put into practice all that we know to do. That's a pretty good prayer list. That's a pretty good prayer list. Stand with me tonight. I was going to say, I will see you next year, but I will see you one more day before this year is concluded, Lord willing, uh, come Sunday. But thank you for being here tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And Lord, I'm most thankful for grace. Uh, we, are a, we are a messy lot sometimes. We get some things right and just as soon as we think we've gained ground, we realize that we blew it somewhere else. But there is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from those sins. You tell us in your word in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, we ask forgiveness for the sins, the sins of unbelief. And, Father, we do pray as we begin to enter into 2024 and Lord, we don't have any assurances that we'll survive to see January the 1st. But Father, if it is in your grace and in your will that we will, Lord, we pray that we would be found faithful, not only as individual believers, but as a people. Lord, we, we have much to learn and we ought not to exalt ourselves in thinking that we've mastered the wholeness of your truth. But Father, teach us and more importantly, Father, transform us through the teaching and through your spirit to be more like Christ, to be conformed to his image. Bless those who've come tonight, Father, their families, our, our larger church family as well. Lord, we pray that 2024 might be a year of revival, that our nation might finally realize that we've departed so far from you and that all that we are dealing with is, is merely the consequences of our own rebellion and that we might humble ourselves and, and come to you and repent and turn away and Lord, we pray that it's not beyond that point we pray for grace we ask these things in jesus name amen